We're going to be talking tonight about forgiveness. Forgiveness 101. Actually, this passage is less about forgiveness than we would make it, but it's a good topic. Matthew chapter 18. We're going to begin with verse 21. This is known as the parable of the unmerciful debtor. And as I ask and have explained numerous times as we go through this study of Jesus' life in the chronological order as best we understand it, that I'm trying to understand these scriptures not in the obvious things that are taught so often, but in the deeper and more profound things that sometimes we might miss. So we begin in, uh, in Matthew 18. We're going to begin reading in verse 21. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times. And Jesus said unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take an account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him ten thousand talents. But for so much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children, and all that he had in payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, and loosed him, and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw that was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desired me. Should not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant? even as I had pity on you. And his Lord was angry and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do unto all you, if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. So again, a truly profound teaching about forgiveness and God's expectation. So if, if that were the sum total of all that was here, what it should our rationale be if we choose to hang on to something and not forgive? After this, what are we going to stand on to say, my situation is different. My situation is unique. If God knew what my situation was, he wouldn't forgive me either. Well, I can tell you that he kind of levels the field here in this teaching. But again, I want to stress some things that sometimes we may actually miss. As Jesus begins this and Peter asked this question about how many times should I forgive my brother? Peter probably had a very specific reason for asking. My suspicion is, because of the conversations that are held just before this, he was probably tired of Judas and probably tired of some of the things that he was seeing going on and asked this question. Now, the Hebrew teaching was that you forgive him three times. So Peter probably thought he was going far beyond what the Hebrew expectation was, what the priest would require when he said, I'll, I'll even go seven times. I'll go four more than the expected three. Probably it was a little startled when Jesus came back and said 70 times seven. 
Now, I can assure you that Jesus isn't expecting us to say, okay, there's, there's number one, there's number two, there's number 480, there's number 488, there's number 489, there's number 490, so that when we got to 491, we didn't have to forgive anymore. And that's not what he's saying, 70 times 7, that's the number of completion. He's saying every time, you forgive every time. Now, there's a uniqueness in this that we need to grasp because right now, hearing that, most of us would be tempted to turn this teaching off simply because the hurt is so real, the damage done is so pervasive that forgiveness isn't even really within our mindset. It's not even possible. So we know this. this is true, We kind of have to move it off to the side because my anger, my bitterness, my frustration, my resentment, whatever it happens to be, is so deep within us. The thought of releasing it, the thought of living without it, it's almost a concept that we can't even hold in our head. Because some of this stuff started so long ago, some of it started in childhood with young adults. It's been going on so long that now it's very difficult for us to even imagine our life without that brokenness in there. And Jesus said unto him again, 70 times 7. I think it's interesting in Jesus' response because Peter said how many times, and Jesus didn't answer it by an answer that would give a number. He actually talked about severity. He talked about an order and magnitude of forgiveness and not frequency or not a number. So Peter asked him a question. It almost seems like, There's a disconnect in Jesus' more complete response because he just wanted to know how many times he got that answer and then Jesus launched into this much longer explanation but now he's talking about the order and magnitude of forgiveness and not frequency. So in verse 23, there's that word therefore. We know he's talking about the specific question that Peter has just asked and he says the kingdom of heaven is likened to a certain king which would take account of his servants or would scrutinize the accounts. I learned something in this one that I had never seen before, that this king was actually looking through his books because he had this word servant makes us understand that he had people who collected his debts for him. So this would have been a collector. This was somebody who was out gathering up the king's money. And so basically he not only owed it to him. He had stolen it. It was the king's money that should have been turned in. The money on the account wasn't there. So the, this man had spent it. It was the king's money that he had stolen, not just that he had squandered it, used it and didn't pay him back. He actually stole it and, and used it. The situation is, uh, is a little more dire. So he was taking account, scrutinizing the accounts of his collectors. It says when he began to reckon, one of them was missing a, a large sum in the estimate I've heard many of them. I looked it up again because of the uncertainty of exactly the currency that was being discussed. It could have been anywhere from 12 million up to a billion dollars. So basically what Jesus was saying, the debt was so large you could have never even imagined paying it back. So Jesus had blown this up so that we could clearly see it, that this was a debt so large that this man couldn't pay it back. And again, we began to understand the significance of that picture of a debt that we can't pay as well. The Lord commanded that he be sold, that his wife and his children be sold as well, all that he had, and that payment would be made. And that was legitimately required according to 
Second Kings and Nehemiah and Leviticus were, he explained what to do. And that's all that was being ordered was follow the law. Go back to the law. Whatever the law says, that's what we're going to do. It says the servant fell down, began to worship him, saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. Again, this sounds so strange because we understand that he didn't have any intention of paying it back. He was hoping that this statement would make some measure of appeal to God's mercy. And he asked him for this mercy. He presents no evidence of proof that he can pay it back. He just simply explored whether or not the, the king would be merciful. The promise that the servant made was absolute nonsense. What's his claim? If you'll give me this, I'll pay you this large amount. Somehow imagining if you have patience with me that all is required for this to ever be met is if you'll just have patience, I'll get it done. As if something magical in the patience would, would create a means by which this debt could be paid. And which, again, is absolutely ridiculous. So the disciples listening had to find this as being somewhat humorous as Jesus made this explanation because he was stretching it so far beyond what realistically could be done. So, but it says he was moved with compassion and he loosed him and forgave the debt. We want to make sure that we understand the spiritual connection that Jesus was making out of this parable. Every one of us owe a debt that there's no way that we could even imagine paying it. But our answers back to God and regarding that debt are as foolish as this one saying, if you'll just have patience on me, then I'll get this taken care of. How many times in our life because of sin, we've just started over and said, God, I promise I won't do that again. I promise that I won't struggle with that anymore. You know, what I used to do, I won't do anymore. And, and what's the end of that promise? It's the same as as ridiculous as this one. Patience somehow will be virtuous enough that it will allow me to pay the debt. He says he had compassion. So he's saying it was undeserved. The man had no way of paying it, made a simple appeal, worshiped God, recognized the king for who he was. The king had compassion, even though the debt was actually due. So it means it was an undeserved forgiveness. He loosed him. He established freedom. I shared this with y'all, and I will probably share it several more times because it's the theme of what the Lord has been releasing through me right now. That everything that Jesus did, Everything that God did on our behalf was to create freedom. Everything. I shared with someone in my office recently that in the book called the Didache, which is the writing of the, of the apostles, when you read it, it reads just like the Bible, chapter and verse. There's a book called the Acts of Barnabas, and it reads chapter and verse, just like the Acts does where it talks about the journeys of Paul and the things that Paul was involved in. There's one that just like that is called the Acts of Barnabas. But in both of those books, this phrase is found. Thou shalt not kill a fetus by abortion. So we ask the question, why then did it not make it into this book? Wouldn't it have clarified? Wouldn't it have helped? Wouldn't it have established a better position by which we could defend that truth? Why wouldn't God put it in here? Because God knew something. And that's why this book is so masterfully written, so inspired by the Holy Spirit, that he knew if it was written down that we shouldn't, that we would stand on that as law, and we would stand with great voice and proclaim that which limits but doesn't set free. See, we want the rule. We want the clarity that says this is what we're supposed to do, and this is what we're not supposed to do, and we want it written down so that we can get it very clear. 
If you don't believe me, you can look within the Jewish culture who had the oracles of God for a long time. They had the scripture, they had the scrolls, and what did they produce along with it? Rules, laws, hundreds of them, trying to get it right. We would rather have the rule, and God says, I'm going to give you something better than the rule. I'm going to send the one who wrote the rule to live in you. So that you'll not only have this one that lives in you so that you'll not have to go read it, but it will be your nature and you'll never even have to imagine. So instead of preaching to this young woman that you should not do this, the instruction within here is that because of the Christ who lives in us, that we love her in such a way, instruct her in such a way, encourage her, bless her in such a way that that never even becomes a possibility. Because we have freedom rather than limitations. God did what he did. He loosed him because he wants us to live in freedom. I find it that we become very sadly aware within the Christian church how few people are truly free. We seem to carry some heaviness of one type or another. Some burden, some problem, we we seem to carry it. And very few have learned to be free. And then it says he forgave him his debt. He removed all the possible outcomes that could happen. In this forgiveness, verse 28, but the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants. So what does that tell us? He went out and found a fellow servant. This wasn't his servant. This wasn't somebody who reported to him. My mindset got changed because I had a king, I had a servant, and I had a servant under him. That's not the case. This is a king who had a collector, and now this collector goes to this collector, a fellow servant. An equal, not somebody he could lord this over, but a fellow servant who owed him a little bit. There's no rank here. There's no privilege here. This is simply the reality of two equals are now facing this problem. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants. Same job. Again, the, this is one of those places. I preached on this recently, and this is one of those that you'll never hear me stop preaching on. Because one of the three things that I talked to you about, about how do you know you're saved? How do you know? Because this is one of those that's a little odd. This one we could wrestle with. But here's the reality that we find within this. That here's a man who was forgiven much, but absolutely received nothing. He owed a debt that he couldn't pay. And here he is now. In this situation where he no longer has a debt, but one of the things we understand is he never received the heart of the king. He never received the attitude of the king. He never received the position of the king. And and so what happened was that his life after this great moment didn't match the great moment. One of the three ways that the litmus test that Jesus established is that the life after our salvation would match the salvation itself. So here we have this huge disconnect between this man who's received this great forgiveness and he won't forgive somebody else. What we realize is that he never received the heart of the king. He received the forgiveness. There was no debt there. But he never took on the reality of the king's heart. He didn't accept what was truly offered. So we shouldn't be surprised the debt is reattached. And I'll explain why and how that happened in just a minute. So his lack of forgiveness truly marked the story that his life after his conversion, after forgiveness, gave great evidence that he never received what was offered in that moment. And that's why there was such an accounting, such a reckoning later on. 
this guy owed him basically a, a few dollars as compared to the millions of dollars that he had been forgiven. So he laid hands on him. It actually says, you took him by the throat and paid me what you owe me. So he was merciless, uh, even by the tone that he used. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. Does that sound familiar? Exactly the same words that he had used before the king. No difference, and Jesus would have done this on purpose to make sure that, it, that you could understand that he asked exactly the same thing of the man to whom he owed this small amount of money. The same attitude, same words, which drew compassion out of his master are employed here from fellow servant to fellow servant. Why didn't the same words here have that effect? It's because the first debtor was talking to the king. The second debtor was talking only to a man. Now this could have changed if the man had truly have received the king, had received the king's heart, had received the king's life in him. Then the fellow servant, the second one, would have also been talking to the king. And those same words would have elicited the same response, but they didn't. Because one was talking to the king, one was talking to a man who had just been forgiven. Again, what does it begin to tell us about the reality of our life and the forgiveness that we receive? It wasn't just about canceling our debt. It was so that we could also receive the king within ourselves. So that somebody talking to us, especially who has a debt, is saying, I'm looking into your face and I recognize I'm talking to a king. I'm asking the king to forgive me, not you. You probably don't have the capacity like this man did. He didn't have the capacity to forgive even a few dollars because he lacked the king. How does this happen in our life? When we were forgiven, we were given the Holy Spirit. So that somebody talking to us about forgiveness, needing forgiveness from us, it's not coming from us. If you're going to get it to come from me, the answer is probably going to be no. I'm still mad at you. But what's the great appeal? Talk to the Spirit. Because that same Spirit that said forgive up here will say forgive down here. How did this end up coming apart the way that it did? He cast him into prison. Because he couldn't pay the debt. So he was intolerable, rash, harsh, and couldn't and wouldn't forgive him. So the fellow servants, the, the rest of these collectors heard about this, and they go to the king, they tell the king all that has transpired in verses thirty two and thirty three. It says then his Lord, after he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, before bringing down his vengeance upon him, he calmly points out to him how shamefully unreasonable and heartless his conduct was which would give the punishment inflicted on him a double sting. So it's like you're going to get the punishment, but here's why. It says his Lord was angry in verse 34. I shared with you early, and I didn't go back to these passages, but in Deuteronomy and others, there's law written back there about what happens to somebody who owes this debt and what you can legally do. So the king could have legally sold this man, sold his wife, sold his children, sold all of his possessions to cover some part of that debt. That was the law. What happened when he refused the king? What happened to him? He went right back under the law. That's what's always going to happen to us if we don't receive the king. If we don't receive the heart of the king, the spirit of the king, if we don't accept the fullness of what that means so that we're releasing the king's heart, we're releasing the king's forgiveness the king's authority, whatever it happens to be, if we're not releasing what the king has established in us, 
We're going to go right back under the law and we're going to start acting and behaving as the law dictates. That's why he threw him in jail. And what did the king say? Well, if you want to live under the law, guess what? I'd be glad to go back to the law. Threw him in prison, had him sold till he could pay his debt. I think that's a little bit amazing in the fact that for us, if we don't live under the spirit, and I'm not talking about as lost men and women, I'm talking about as people who have been forgiven, if we don't accept the fullness of what God intended, if we don't receive his heart by the work of the Holy Spirit, if we don't receive his love by the work of the Holy Spirit, if we don't receive the nature of the king within us, we're going to go straight back to the law and begin treating each other like the law said. Guess what? how we're going to be reckoned with? When our day comes and we stand at the judgment seat of Christ, guess what? How, how our reckoning will come based on the law. What does Jesus want to see when it's our time at the judgment seat? Who does he want to see when he looks in my face? He wants to see himself. If he doesn't see himself, then he has to judge me based on the law. And the consequences are going to be based on the law. Now, am I still going to be saved? Absolutely. I'm going to be, be there. But there's going to be a consequence. When he finds we haven't accepted, we didn't receive, we didn't release the king, as happened here, what's our consequence going to be? And we're going to find that it looks very similar to this. Amazingly similar. So, so likewise in verse 35 in the spirit or, or on this principle shall my heavenly father do also unto you. If you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother. Their trespasses. He's not saying it as a rule. He's not saying it as the law. He's saying it's as evidence of the fact that you have the spirit of God living in you. The evidence that you have accepted the fullness of me. Because if, if you have. He says, likewise, you're supposed to do what I did because that's my heart toward you. If you have my heart in you, this is what you're going to do to others. We've kind of duped ourselves into believing something else. If we can go through life with bitterness and anger and frustration and it persists, it ought to at least cause this question mark in our mind to say, how is that persisting in this life that now holds the Holy Spirit? How can unforgiveness, how can bitterness, how can anger... I was angry, hurt. It was that kind of hurt and that kind of anger that was just a half inch away from persistent bitterness that seems to live a lifetime. I was that close. And God sent me Robert Morgan. He sent me someone who would push through all the barriers that I had put up with Joanne saying, Robert, leave him alone. And Robert said, no, I will not leave him alone. I can tell you, when you look at Robert. And you look at me, I could have slipped into that, but God sent someone. So Robert was faithful. Robert was obedient to walk those steps. It had to be hard steps because I had put myself in a position where I was unapproachable and he did it anyway. But I asked myself, where would I have been had he not pushed through and with persistence attacked the anger that was in me? But this other question comes, what if I hadn't received it? What if I hadn't received it as the love that God was sending and the bitterness had formed. I promise you, I wouldn't have been standing here today. You all know the, the rest of that story. It was a year later when God says, you know all those problems? That was me. I did it all. That wasn't the world. That wasn't Satan. That was me. I did it all. Because he knew that I would be standing here at this point if I would accept the correction, the love, the discipline, the change that he saw that was so absolutely necessary in me. We will love our brother. And John said it very well. This is the evidence the fact that we have a very transformed and changed life, we will love our brother. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this teaching tonight, for the clarity of this parable. And Lord, I pray that we would see the depth of it beyond 
just the forgiveness as important as that is. But I want us to realize that that's not forgiveness that, that originates in our heart. That's forgiveness that originates in yours. It's the king's forgiveness, the immeasurable forgiveness, the one that doesn't even keep count of how much it was. They can't quite grasp the enormity of it. It's the king's forgiveness, the forgiveness that's born in our spirit in relationship to your spirit, the forgiveness that can't be measured or can't be numbered in the number of times, as Peter asked. It's boundless. I pray, Lord, that that forgiveness would just penetrate because we carry the Holy Spirit in us. I pray, Lord, that it would even begin tonight, that old debts would be forgiven and newness could come, freshness could come. And Lord, so that we could immediately extend it. So I pray, Lord, first of all, that each one here would fully receive not only the forgiveness of the king, but the king's heart, the king's life within them. So that when someone asks for our forgiveness, we can say with great abundance, certainly, because we know that they're not talking to us, they're talking to the spirit that lives in us. But they're talking to the king who chose to live in me. I pray, Lord, that they would always see the King in Jesus' name. Amen.